The following is a conversation between Chuck Slaughter, founder of Living Goods, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. Living Goods aims to save lives at scale by supporting digitally empowered community health workers. But what happens to that work in the midst of a pandemic? Here to tell us how they are addressing the COVID-19 crisis while continuing with their vital work is Chuck Slaughter, the founder of Living Goods. Welcome back to The Business of Giving, Chuck. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, I'm happy to be back under the circumstances. Start, if you would, by giving us a quick overview of what Living Goods does and how it operates. So Living Goods, as you said, supports community health workers in some of the hardest hit countries in the world, particularly across Africa and Asia, to treat children for some of the most common, easily treatable diseases like malaria, diarrhea, and pneumonia. And so we support nearly 10,000 community-based health providers who are digitally enabled, who provide treatment and care for those diseases, who support pregnant women, provide family planning services. And the work that we do is reducing child mortality by over 25%. And we're able to do this in an incredibly efficient uh, manner at a cost of less than $3 per person reached per year. Fantastic. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about that work and how you've pivoted, but you mentioned yeah. Africa a moment ago. We know yeah. that this pandemic is beginning to hit the developing world, beginning to hit the global south. We also know of the fragility of the healthcare systems down there, but tell us how it's going to play out through Africa and maybe how it will be differently than it does here in the global north. You know, Every one of us is being touched and affected by this disease in different ways. All, every country, every state, every community, and, and everyone in a different way. In Africa, we're facing a pretty grim situation. The, I would start with this. It's a, it's a continent of a population of approximately 800 million people, two and a half times the size of the U.S., where... The key elements that we use to fight this disease here are very challenged there. So what are we are doing here? We're using testing, physical distancing, and improved hygiene. In Africa, 90% of the people have to walk out the door every day to put food on the table at night. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to do physical distancing, the ability to work at home is nearly impossible. Testing availability, as we know, has been a huge challenge in the U.S. You can imagine it's an even greater challenge in, in Africa. The developed countries have snapped up all the testing supply. And then when it comes to care for the, the, those who are most severely affected by the disease, the capacity of hospitals is a fraction on a per capita basis of what it is here. I'll give you a, you know, a relevant example. I live in California. The population of California, which is about 50 million, is similar to the, our two biggest countries at Living Goods, Uganda and Kenya, also each about 50 million. California has about 10,000 critical care beds. Mm -hmm. Kenya and Uganda each have fewer than 500. Oh, wow. And so this is going to be a brush fire uh, in, in Africa. And there's relatively little we can do to prevent a lot of the harm that's going to come. One of our imperatives has to be to protect the health system itself and to protect health workers from succumbing to the disease so that there's an intact healthcare system there when this is done. Yeah, yeah. 
Talk a little bit more about that, because from what you're saying, there's a danger that other diseases like malaria can spread if yeah. we put our entire focus on COVID-19. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a, a big challenge. I'd add one other big point about protective gear. You know, we've seen how hard it is to get protective gear for our essential frontline health professionals just in hospitals. Protective gear is going to be in scarce supply in facilities. And the health workers who we support who are community-based are going to be, it's going to be nearly impossible for them to access. Mm-hmm. But, but to your point, given the grim you know, facts I've just shared, what Living Goods has determined and what me- most of the people who work in this community health field have determined is that the most important thing we need to do are to protect the health of those health workers and then to give them mechanisms for continuing to provide care for things like malaria and pneumonia and diarrhea uh, in a safe way. Because if we fail to do those two things, many, many more people will die from malaria, diarrhea, pneumonia as who will die from COVID uh, in the next year. Have you been able to reimagine the way your community health workers will work in terms of trying to do that while protecting themselves? Yeah, at, at, at Living Goods and many of the organizations who we partner with and support, we're fortunate that we are able to, to implement a, ma- a manner for people to, to diagnose and treat those other diseases while protecting themselves. So we call it no-contact care. Mm-hmm. And so we've implemented a no-contact care protocol. And it relies very significantly on one of our core strengths, which is technology. Yeah. As you and I know, you know the healthcare and education sectors have been thrown into the digital deep end, as it were, <laughs> and the imperative to use digital, mobile and digital tools to provide care and to do uh, teaching in the public, you know, in the public schools has become imperative almost overnight. And how, in the way we're using it is we are sending, we have a digital platform that enables health workers with a smart, everyone has a smartphone that they can do, uh, now they can do a diagnosis over the phone using this diagnostic tool. We have the telephone, the cell phone numbers of 85% of the clients we serve. So what are we doing? We're sending a text message every couple of days to every household to ask them if anyone in the household is ill. And if the answer is yes, we direct the health worker to call them to do an assessment over the phone using our state-of-the-art digital tool. And if they are determined to have malaria or one of these other easily treatable diseases, the health worker can leave the medicine outside the door. Oh, wow. That's great. Uh, and then we can track each of the, we, we, the system will send a message to those patients every day to ensure they adhere to the medicines. And then we can track the outcome of each patient. And that includes the, the core diseases we treat and the COVID patients who we identify through this. So we've modified our digital tool to be able to do a symptomatic diagnosis for uh, COVID. Yeah, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I do think a lot about those community health workers. I know what you're doing yeah. to protect them now, but I know also that they're predominantly women and they're all entrepreneurs. So I think yeah. what will happen to them on the other end of this pandemic? Will they still be employed? And I mean, is there a confidence that because of these digital tools, they will be able to, to navigate and work around this yeah. and continue to help support themselves and their family? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point. Most community health workers in Africa have at least two jobs. They're doing mm-hmm. their community health work. The sad truth is in many countries, they're not paid. They're asked to work as volunteers. All the health workers we support get 
are compensated. They get uh, pay for performance compensation. But the interesting thing is, and I think the compelling thing to your earlier question, we expect the community, these community health workers across Africa to potentially see a doubling or tripling of demand for community-based care for things like malaria, diarrhea, and pneumonia, because the hospitals and the health facilities are going to be jammed. Yeah. People are going to be scared to travel, and they're going to be concerned that every sniffle and every cough they feel might be COVID. And so we're preparing in, in a couple of ways for that. We're assuming that our demand is going to go way up. We thought ahead of time, we've doubled our stocks of essential medicines, but this is going to come at a cost. So one of our big needs right now is, quite honestly, is raising money to pay for the additional medicines that have to be delivered at the community level to treat those diseases. And to your point, they're going to be spending far more of their time on their health work. We have to compensate them for that. And we have to make up for the earnings that they're missing from doing work that would have taken them out of the home and put them at risk. Mm -hmm. So we don't want our healthcare workers going to open markets to barter for food. And so we have to replace that income as it were. And so this is gonna have a huge economic impact on any living goods and any other organizations like us who support uh, community-based uh, health workers. Yeah, but it also sounds like there could be a silver lining for these community health workers because perhaps more people will get their health care through them. But getting to that point is going to be very difficult and it's not going to be cheap is what it sounds like. Yeah, I, you know, you don't get into this work at Denver, I think, if you're not a, a little bit of an optimist. <laughs> yes. And we all, you know, it's thing we the place we find ourselves in, I've been calling you know, sort of the foreseeable has become the unimaginable. Mm -hmm. But imagination is powerful. And I, what I imagine coming out of this potentially is a much more robust healthcare system that has taken a great, in many places, in many ways, taken a great leap forward in using digital tools to provide better, faster, cheaper care to patients. Mm -hmm. and creating a uh, healthcare systems where the patient is really at the center and not the system, as it were. And that's the simple experiment that I described a moment ago, where we're pinging families and asking them to self-identify if they have symptoms. We think we'll sort of, you know, prime the pump, if you will, of patients demanding care earlier in treatment, and, and, and there being mechanisms like this system that we've built for providers to come to them. You know, Denver, we've all gotten used to in the US having a, so much of our, of what we consume come to us on demand. Yes. We can get our food, our music, our movies, our news, our money, any time of the day, anywhere, any in the way that we'd like on demand, hailing a cab, uh, booking travel from your bed. Why haven't we been able to pull off the healthcare on demand? Mm -hmm. It's not because we, it's, that it's impossible. And I do think that this is forcing healthcare systems everywhere into experiments that, are, that, are, that will lead to more on-demand healthcare. And, you know, another way I, we think about this in the healthcare world is a lot of the healthcare problems we face, people tend to think are behavioral. How do you get people to do things that are in their own interest, right. to take better, better care of the health, to go to their doctor when they're ill, to take their medicines when they're supposed to, you know, 
to watch after their lifestyle decisions if you've got chronic disease. And I think the most powerful way we can get, we can improve health is by making it easier for people <laughs> to do all of those things. Yeah. And that's what the on-demand digital economy has done in every other sector, save healthcare. And if we can make it easier for people to adhere to the things that they know are good for them, we'll do more for healthcare than I think we've done in, in a generation. Absolutely, it's always the ecosystem. And if you can remove that friction, people will actually do it. Matter of fact, mm -hmm. I think some of the behavioral science I said is that 70% of it has to do with that environment of making it easy and only 30% on the characteristics of that individual. And we think it's the opposite. So it is changing that system and making it simple and people will follow through. Yeah. In addition to changing the healthcare system, how do you think all this is gonna change the way Living Goods goes about its work, your workforce? I mean, are you yeah. doing things now at Living Goods that you had not done previously and say, you know what, maybe we should start doing that when yeah. the organization regains a semblance of normal? Well, you know, the big opportunity in front of us is helping more countries make the transition to a digital first health system. Mm -hmm. And, the, the, you know, what, what I, again, I'm cautiously optimistic about is even before COVID hit, in the last, just in the last year and a half, we began having more and more countries and large um, NGOs come to us to ask for our help to digitize and modernize their health workforce. And so, Four countries have raised their hands and asked us in the last year to do just that. And I think that, you know, for these unfortunate reasons, I think this is going to accelerate the, the priority the countries place on, on digitization and creating mechanisms that make it easier for people to access care. And so I think we're going to see, I, I hope we're going to see that interest increase. I hope we will see funding increase from that. But I'll tell you where, you know, a lot of the funding in our work has come from that has not been from the traditional foundations. It's come from the new generation of philanthropists who, have, you know, who are successful entrepreneurs in many cases, who in many cases have used technology to build their businesses and who see the power of using digital tools to transform the social sector and, and the government sector. Mm -hmm. And for those, for any of you in your audience who have those skills, who work in those sectors, I encourage you to get involved in health, to bring those skill sets to, to healthcare and education. I think you're gonna see a much more receptive audience oh, yeah. In, yeah. in your government partners and your the local NGOs who are trying to use digital to, to bring better services to people. Chuck, what have you found to be the keys of being an effective leader in a crisis? And how do you see leadership, maybe yours, but others in the nonprofit sector as well, changing in a post COVID-19 world? Well, it's interesting. I was asked that question by another funder of ours, and, and I ended up writing actually a short thought piece on this very question. But, you know, uh, the simple answer I would give to it is that if you think of the job of a leader in a time of crisis, maybe in any time, frankly, is to really to do two things. Is one, to be absolutely straight and clear about what reality it is we're facing. Mm-hmm and not to sugarcoat it. As my dad used to say, see the world for what it is, not for what you hope it to be. Yep. But at the same time, portray a compelling picture of hope and opportunity. Mm -hmm. To be both realistic and optimistic at the same time. I think that's the challenge of this kind of moment. But I have found in the health sector, in the early, we saw this sadly, 
in, in the political leadership and in the health leadership, country by country, that leaders failed to call out, to, to, to grasp and to call out the reality of what they were facing. Everyone was too slow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't care if you were a rich country or a poor country, it's happened in the, in the same way. And, to, and so to my fellow leaders in, in business and the social sector, my, you know, my main mantra is, is call reality, do it early. And then you have to get working on your, on your plan and, and work from a probable worst case and hope for a better case. Yeah. It does seem that a new value to come out of this is speed. You have to do things quickly. And I think you have to do things without having the full picture or all the information, but make a decision. Yeah. And as we've seen yeah. country after country that jumped on it, California jumped on it, there have been real positive dividends, but those, even within this nation, those governors who dawdled and waited and waited and waited, they eventually all did it, but it has really cost their population dearly. Yeah. And I, you know, speed is, is you know, the interesting thing about that concept is when organizations, be they companies or nonprofits or governments, make the shift to a digital first mindset where you're collecting information digitally in the first instance from your patients, mm -hmm. from your students. Those platforms allow you to manage with much greater speed. You're right. You can test, when you have a digital backbone as an element of your work, you can test ideas and get answers much faster. Mm -hmm. And it's a big, to your point, I think one of the shifts, you, in leadership shifts, I think, that are, is going to be imperative is leaders of legacy or incumbent organizations have to build in their organizations the capacity to learn faster. Yes. The digital age, the opportunity in the digital age is to learn much, much faster about what works and to pursue change with greater speed and to sort of shorten the cycle time of learning. Mm -hmm. And the organizations I think that are, in regardless of sector, that are gonna thrive are not gonna be the ones who come up with a great idea because those are hard to come by. The way you come up with great ideas is by trying a lot of things quickly. Yeah, that's right. Failing, uh, iterating, failing, yeah. iterating. When you hear the great idea, no one ever talks about the 50, the 50 things that didn't work that were the precursor to the great idea. Well, that um, old story goes, nobody knows that Babe Ruth struck out more than anybody in history. All we remember is 714 home runs. So <laughs> that's the way it goes. And no, I can add to that too, I, I think you're going to see organizations trying to remove steps because one of the best ways to move faster is to remove steps. If you have yeah. eight steps in a process and you can cut it to three, you can move that much faster. So I think we're going to see this pruning of the bureaucracy to really analyze what steps are not necessary here because that's a, another wonderful way to, to be able to act more quickly. Yeah. I, I want to share two other quick things with you, Denver. Please do. Um, one on the, on the technology front and one thinking about, you know, everyone is trying to answer the question, how can I make my philanthropic uh, impulses most effective? Mm -hmm. So first on the technology piece, there are two ideas that I am supporting aggressively in both the U.S. and in African developing markets that are a technology angle. One is how do we get a better visibility on the spread of the disease? Everywhere in the world, testing is a constraint. There's a brilliant, simple idea that was floated here during SARS to ask people to self-report if they had flu symptoms. It was called flu near you. 
Mm -hmm. And the people behind us have created a new thing called COVID Near You, which is a very, very simple website you can go to, covidnearyou.org, and allows you to self-report if you have COVID symptoms. And if we can get people using this on a national basis, it will give our health leaders and our political leaders a much better visibility about the actual spread. The epidemiologists are telling us that the actual spread can be, you know, five to 20 times what we're seeing by virtue of the limited testing capacity. Yeah. And so and from what I understand uh, too, that data is now admissible. I was speaking to Larry yeah. Brilliant about that. That was not yeah. admissible by the powers that be in yeah. the health sector. But about three, four years ago, they changed it. And that data is yeah. now considered to be legitimate by those yeah. decision makers. It is. And, and actually, one of Larry's organizations, Ending Pandemics, mm -hmm. is part of the, 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 the thought leadership behind COVID near you. And we're, we put up a similar thing that's, that's spreading across Africa right now um, called Health Alert. It's created by a group called Prekelt out of South Africa. I'm a huge fan of these guys. And we're putting up a symptom checker, a symptom self-reporting system like this in 20 countries in Africa. The other, the other related thing is we're, we're trying to apply the same idea, but specifically to the health workforce. And um, we're calling this health of the health workforce daily snapshot. And so we're going to pilot, we hope, in, in four or five countries, a text blast to every health worker to ask them to self-report on three simple questions every day. Do, I have, do you have a fever? Are you working? And do you have adequate protective gear? And this is to provide health leaders with a daily visibility of the health of their health workforce. 20% of the Italian health workforce has come down with COVID. They've mm. lost 200 doctors there. If that happens in other countries, the healthcare systems will be crippled and yeah. people will die from all these other things um, for lack of care. So that, that's, those are the two big sort of global goods in, if you will, in better data for COVID that, we're, that I'm promoting. The, on the philanthropy front, many people have come to me and many people are asking, you know, what can I do? How can I make a difference? How can I make the most difference with my uh, philanthropy in this, in this time? And I, I would offer a couple of thoughts. So one is, you know, a lot of, a lot of the immediate needs that we're, that we're seeing in my work through the Goldsmith Foundation are around people who are being put out of work, who, are, who, who, who like in Africa here, are dependent on hourly day, daily incomes. And these people need, frankly, uh, need money to put food on the table also. And so your local organizations who do social services that provide food and shelter are, are at the top, locally are at the top of my list. These are your, your food banks and your local social service agencies. A macro point though I would also make is that there's a real risk Unlike in, in, during the Ebola crisis, a lot of foreign aid went to stamp out the Ebola in, in Africa, something like 20 or $30 billion. And that happened very quickly. The difference was that Ebola had, did not make a significant beachhead in the European and American locations. And the difference now is because this is um, so fully absorbed the health systems and the governments of the United States and, and, and Europe and the other developed countries, there's a real fear I have that the resources needed to prevent a potential tsunami of suffering in Africa and in India and the developing countries 
that the the financial resources that are going to be needed to to address that may not be there. Yeah. And so as hard as it is for all of us in our own communities that are so significantly affected, I just encourage people to think about the global community and these other countries who depend on U.S. foreign aid, who plan, pretend on the, who, who depend on the philanthropy of, of people in the U.S. and Europe as a key pillar of their healthcare provision. And it's needed now more than ever because the, 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 the suffering and the damage there could be even worse than we're experiencing here. No, that's a great admonition because a lot of those funders will look out their window and they'll see the need right outside down on the street, but they need to keep that big perspective because if this hasn't taught us uh, like nothing else ever has, we are all connected. Wonderful insights, great wisdom. Share with us, Chuck, what listeners can do to help Living Goods, give you some yeah. of that money you might need or help yeah. in, in any other way. Yeah. So if you're interested in helping Living Goods, you can obviously go to um, www.livinggoods.org. You can make a donation directly through the website. If you're interested in doing something more substantial, you, I'd encourage you to email us directly. I'll be so brave as to provide my own uh, email address on this. You can reach me at cslaughter at livinggoods.org, and I will channel your interest to the right person. We are particularly looking for um, successful business people with technology expertise who have the interest in in getting involved in this effort. It's, there's, a, there's an impressing short-term need, but there's a huge long-term opportunity to bring technology skill sets, particularly from our, our bigger technology-abled companies in this country to help the health sector take the great leap forward that I think is possible. Amen. Well, I know how terribly busy you are, Chuck, and I just want to let you know how grateful I am to you for taking the time to share this information with us. Thanks and, and stay well, Chuck. Thank you so much, everyone who's listening in. We encourage you to stay well, listen to what people are telling you, uh, keep your distance, do your hygiene. We're all in this together. Take care.